Welcome to Brews Rock. We're Chuck Mountain, a band nestled in the beautiful beer country of North Carolina. Each week, we pick brewers' minds about their brewing philosophy and pick up tricks to bring new life to your home brew. We played at countless breweries and decided it was about time to learn how to craft our own. Welcome to another episode of Brews Rock. We've got a great one for you this week and full calendar of exciting stuff for you coming up this month. Keep tuning in for interviews from the NC Brew Fest, the Power and Sound Revival Music Festival, and our interview with Meredith from Angry Troll Brewing in Elkin. Also, get ready to celebrate Chuck Mountain's newest collaboration with Little Oblivion Brewing in Graham, North Carolina. And if you're local, come on out to our Bartender Appreciation Night on the 17th. Speaking of appreciation, we want to thank John Clowney, the co-founder and CEO of Bull City Cider Works, for having us out to Lexington this week for a chat over some amazing ciders. We had a great time talking about the difference between brewing cider and brewing beer and the environmental impact that brewing cider makes. We also talked about how his background in finance helped him to have foresight to see potential growth in an underserved market and the struggles within North Carolina legislation for a cidery. We had a great time touring his brewing and distribution center and learned a lot about the importance of supporting U.S. manufacturers. Let's dive right in. Do you want to introduce yourself to the audience just in case they're not familiar with you and your brewery? Absolutely. My name is John Clowney. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Bull City Cider Works, which is located in Lexington, Durham, where we started, Greensboro, Cary, and now Wilmington, North Carolina. When's the Wilmington one opening? So the Wilmington location is our newest location that opened up in the end of July of last year. Oh, okay. So it is open. What part of Wilmington is that in? So it's actually a really interesting area. It's called the Cargo District, which I think is a place that as a tourist, it hasn't been found by a lot of the tourism yet. It's more so a lot of local Wilmington people hanging out in the cargo district, but really neat area in today's distilling. If you guys have heard of that, that's like right around the corner from us. And they were probably similar to how Bull City and Lexington was the first tenant or company in the in the depot district. They were kind of the anchor tenant of the first thing that happened in the cargo district. And now there's all this other development around them. So I'd say probably the most popular bottle shop in that area for mental just moved into the area from Ogden. We're right across the street from them. Cheese Smith, which was a food truck, very popular in Wilmington. They've got a brick and mortar there now. So now it's like all these cool little bars and restaurants that have popped up in that area. So it's at 17th Street between Queen and Castle. So about 17 blocks off the water. Okay. Nice. Yeah. We play down there. There's a restaurant called Marina Grill on Target Street up there. And so we go down there all the time. So we're when we go down this year, we're going to definitely pop around to some different places. I would highly recommend it. There's Airbnbs and stuff like that. There's hotels not too far away, but it's a really cool area. I'd say it has your hip feel in terms of like younger population and new development. 
Well, we're going down there. We're we staying on them. the water when we go this first time. Yeah, we, we're staying on a boat this time. Yeah, it's a nice. Like, it's <laughs> right, right off of where we're feel we like you're at the beach. Right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think when we stayed down there, I just did like an Airbnb kind of the weekend or four days or whatever when we were opening up down there we stayed i guess it's like right by the one tree hill bridge i never watched the show but <laughs> that bridge that's in the credits apparently was like right out in front of our door oh man and just a bunch of people out there taking yeah, pictures, taking pictures. <laughs> and somebody oh, stole man. my bike so that was great but <laughs> stepping into the cider world you were telling us a little bit earlier you come from a financial background and yeah. looking at like the beer world, did that play a lot into your decision to go cider? Yeah, I think it did. So my background is analytical finance is what my actual degree is. And then I got my CPA, but I never wanted to be an accountant. So I did not practice accounting. I don't do anybody's taxes. That's always the question. You say, like, <laughs> hey, I do, I've got a CPA. And they're like, oh, you want to do my taxes? Like, I don't do that. Yep. <laughs> no. Yep. But right out of school, I moved to New York and worked on Wall Street for a couple of years and then worked for a private equity firm buying warehouses actually across the country. So very familiar with real estate acquisition, development, redevelopment. We weren't doing adaptive reuse and development like we did for this warehouse from Bull City. We were doing more distribution centers. So we were doing leases with FedEx, with UPS, with big multinational, international type companies. But there's a lot of good training on the real estate side, which is certainly part of our business when you think about how we've expanded and grown in other markets. In terms of actually choosing to get an insider, being on the road all the time and traveling different cities and out of town every week. But I always trying out like all these craft beers and beverages every, anywhere I go, like, hey, I want to try out the new beers. What's everybody have? So it was very into craft beer and craft beverages generally. So micro distillation, anything like that. For Christmas back in 2012, I got a homebrew kit and made some terrible beer. Oh, yeah. Um, but the good part is, it's like when you make beer, even though it's terrible to drink, it's not going to kill anybody. So you still invite your neighbors over. And you're like, hey, guys, I made beer. Yeah. Everybody's like, hey, that's not bad. And it's like, yeah, it kind of is bad, but yeah. it's still 6%. Um, so anyway, made some bad beer and did that a couple of times. And then actually one of my best friends growing up had moved back to North Carolina. He had been living in Massachusetts for a while. We made some beer. He obviously was a better brewer. The beer was better. And so we're like, we both really like the craft game, taking a look at it. Maybe there's a spot for us to do something here. And so we thought about micro distillation, thought about beer, and then I started researching cider. At the time, as we were talking about before the podcast here, at that time, there were probably 2,500 licensed breweries in the country. There were permits in process of about another 2,000. So I was very concerned at some point, when do we hit max beer? Yeah. When are we going to hit a saturation point of there's so many companies doing this? Or also taking from the perspective of how do we carve out something that's a little bit different? Because we're already making a lot of good beer in North Carolina. Yeah. So even taking a look at our market in the triangle at the time, it's like, okay, we've got to make good beer, better beer, market it better, and be better than these guys are already doing a really good job in the triangle, much less the rest of the state. So it's like, it's already pretty somewhat competitive market in North Carolina, and it seems to be growing even faster. So. That's where it really started taking a look at other markets, the micro distillation. We didn't know anything about distillation. It has a whole other layer of equipment and scientific process, not that you can't figure it out. And then really started looking in the cider, which at the time, Angry Orchard had started in 2012 is when Sam Adams started Angry Orchard. It's owned by Boston Beer Company. And that just kind of exploded the cider market. And so for better or worse, it at least gave name to the market, right? Because I think yeah. cider had fallen out of favor to a lot of people, they didn't know what it was. They had never had an experience with cider. 
So for better or worse, Angry Orchard was marketing like, hey, there's this alternative beverage, it's not beer, it's cider. And they weren't making something that was very orchard-based, that was wine-like. It was like, hey, you can sub out beer if you're gluten-free, you can drink this. Yeah. So if you look back from when they launched from 2012 and 2013, 14, 15, like the size of the cider market is just doubling every year, yeah. more than doubling in terms of volume and dollars being produced out of that market. And so it's really somewhat calculated on that. It's like, man, it's already so competitive in the beer space. Like even if the market overall for cider is smaller, it may be easier for us to carve out a better position for ourselves. And at that time in North Carolina, you really only had Noble up in Asheville. They had started operations. Urban Orchard was planning and getting underway with operations. And then there were a couple vineyards that were making a cider and that was it. If you rewind, again, back to 2012, 2013, 2014 in North Carolina, there's less than a handful of people even focused on cider. So I really thought there was an opportunity for us looking at the different markets to make a bigger play faster in cider than we could in beer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you, you know, look at our production volume, I think that is the case relative to a lot of breweries in the state. Yeah, definitely, um, like from what we've seen, you got a big production going on here. Yeah, so. no, no, it's, it's pretty good size. But there's a ton of consumer education that still has to occur. That's the thing about it. It's as much cider as we make, there's still so much more beer consumed on a regular basis. And that's why we can support so many breweries in the state. But what we have seen is our cider count has gone from, like I'm saying, less than a handful back in 2012, 2013, and 2014, up to about 22, 24 cidery, you know, in the state of North Carolina now. So we've also been one of the founding members of the North Carolina Cider Association. I still serve on the board with that organization, and we're just trying to continue to build and promote cider, and specifically North Carolina cider. Cider versus beer. Yeah. What's the big difference in the brewing process? Yes, yeah, so the facility we're in is a fully modern winery. If we wanted to make Chardonnays or Rieslings or Cabs or whatever, we could do that here too. We are a fully modern winery. So from a permitting perspective, it's really interesting. If you went back 250 years, cider was a primary beverage before we were consuming much more beer in this country, we consume more cider. We had early immigration and kind of colonial uh, New England. There was there were difficulties propagating grain. So initially when it came over, it's man, grain production is not going the way they thought. So apples were growing great in that climate. When you think of like Massachusetts, that whole area, yeah. kind of New England. So apples grew fine. And so cider really became the primary beverage of early America. As you had industrial revolution, you had groups moved away from more agrarian lifestyles, moving into cities, orchards were abandoned. Once you had prohibition, a lot of orchards were cut down. So cider started off as a beverage up here in terms of consumption in our country, and then really plummeted as we had a lot more immigration in the country, more German, more Irish. They're gonna figure out how to get beer. That's what yeah. we do as people, right? Yeah. <laughs> so beer kind of has its run. You do have prohibition. A lot of orchards are cut down. It really just floundered the rest of the time until you had this resurgence, call it in 2012, 2013 of Angry Orchard, and then Smith & Forge and every other big beer company making yeah. it. But when you think about the actual science of it, it's very different. It's much more fruit fermentation, which is why it ends up being categorized as unfortified wine. There is no cider classification. It's just made or produced as unfortified wine. But it is fruit fermentation, much the same way you would make wine. The primary difference is when you think about fermentation overall, what it really is, is you're pitching your yeast in, your yeast is consuming sugar. If you're making beer, you've got to extract the sugars, you got to do your boil, make your mash, right? And so that's creating the sugars coming out of those grains, right? And so when that happens, you put your yeast and it consumes all that sugar, it makes beer. For wine, for cider, 
for any other kind of fruit fermentation where you're getting natural sugar from the fruit. So there's no boiling process, there's no mash that you have to make. You're actually starting with sugar just from the fruit. And so for us, we're actually bringing in, we don't press the apples here, we press off site. We bring in a tanker of cider, 5,500 gallons, 180 barrels of fresh pressed single strength apples. So we're not using an apple concentrate, we're using single pressed apples. That'll have bricks somewhere in the 12 to 13 or 14 bricks range, bricks being your sugar content measure. And so we'll pitch the yeast then and we'll start the fermentation. Then within cider overall, our fermentation is a little bit different than a lot of cider. So a lot of cider, We'll start the process the same, either with concentrate or apple juice, whatever it is, pitch the yeast in. But a lot of cider, they're going to use a different yeast strain, typically cider or champagne yeast. We use an English ale yeast, which is very different. That's mm. why it tastes different. Yeah. This has a huge impact on your flavor profile. And the other thing that they would do is go ahead and ferment totally dry. So once they pitch that yeast, they'll let it consume all the fermentable sugar. So it's totally fermented, no sugar left in it. But then by doing that, you don't want to drink that because it just doesn't have any flavor to it. If you take something totally dry, people will say they like dry, but people like sweet. Yeah. yeah. And so what they have to do is either add back apple juice or concentrate or sugar, water, or something to put sweetness back into that base liquid, that base cider. So we actually stop our fermentation early. And so we leave unfermented, non-fermented sugar is where we get our sweetness from. How do you stop the fermentation process? All the big tanks that we were looking at, if you looked up, there's like these big branch lines that run through, so they all have glycol. So the same way that the brewers' fermenters are all temperature controlled, all those are jacketed fermenters as well. They're actually the same that you would use for brewing beer. So they're connected into that chiller, which has a glycol system, and that's how you keep maintain temperature on those tanks. So when we're fermenting, if we didn't run the chiller and cool those tanks and keep them at 70 degrees, naturally they probably spike up to around 90 degrees and that's when you start getting inside a bunch of weird flavors okay that's where you're going to get weird sulfur flavors weird fusel flavors a bunch of different stuff like that that's how we maintain the temperature during fermentation to arrest the fermentation or stop the fermentation you just change the temperature so if we're fermenting at say 70 degrees as what we typically use we want to take that down to about 33 or 34 degrees fahrenheit and that will stop the fermentation so it retards the yeast enough that they'll collect, go to the bottom, and then after that, we actually go through a filtration process to get it into the bright tanks. That's crazy. Sounds like you'd have a lot less waste too with the yeah. cider brewing process as opposed to beer. We do, since, yeah. we're not, since we're not doing anything with grains up front. Now, at the processor side, at Peterson Farms, they process most of our cider. They are gonna have the pomace, the spent pomace, but they can yeah. give it to farmers as just biofuel mass for cattle or whatever, yeah. like they do with grain. Yeah. Yeah. But generally speaking, yeah, I don't think it produces as much waste. And we don't have hops in everything either. We do make specific ciders that do have hops in them, but everything doesn't have hops in them. So we don't have spent hops from sparging bags or anything like that either. Yeah. So yeah, a little bit different process, yeah. but pretty Could clean. Make a good like environmental case for yeah. Yeah. going for ciders over beers too. And we're not, we definitely don't have as much impact on water because we're, the only water we're using is for cleaning purposes and then rehydrating yeast because we start with dry yeast. So we rehydrate the yeast ourselves and nutrient. But other than that, we're not putting any water in the product. So versus beer, that's whatever. So when you add in all the other fruits, where does that go in the process? So we don't typically do any kind of co-ferment with that. We'll do base cider fermentation. So if we're making off-main, your base cider, making cherry tart, for example, you still start with off-main, but then post-fermentation secondary is when we added that fruit. Mm. And so if it's something that's gonna be packaged, we'll still add that in the fermenter and then filter that just to make sure any kind of impurity is out of that cherry, for example. 
because if it's going in a can, it doesn't stay cold. It goes to a distributor, it goes on a truck, it goes off a truck, it goes, exactly. You don't want like yeah. all this crazy stuff happening. So with the kegs, we don't have to filter that because we have full chain of custody of that in cold storage. It's cold here, it goes on a truck for an hour or two, it goes back in cold storage. Now when it gets to an account, who knows what to do with it. That's where it's, man, all bets are off. You never know what people do with the kegs or cans or whatever once they get them. But we have pretty good visibility of people keeping that stuff cold. So we don't filter everything that's in a keg, but we filter anything that goes in package. That's really interesting. Yeah. Because like your cherry tart was the first thing that I learned. I mean, I feel like that's probably your like staple. It really is for years. So that was actually, we made that first time back in 20, must have been September time frame of 2014 and it was just going to be like a seasonal like hey we'll do this this will be fun yeah um, and it's definitely been one of the top sellers for sure so over that entire period of time first beer i ever saw too or first cider yeah. i ever saw from you guys as well yeah ludicrous though we came out with that yeah i mean that over the last eight months 12 months has been crushing it gets yeah, right? i've never had it before yeah. okay cool this is really good. no that is a core <laughs> one that is a core cider now good and core package product so we're trying to push that package keg anywhere everywhere we can that's really good I, that's pretty awesome isn't it yeah it's just like the blueberry lemon flavor i think it's definitely well, one of the best really ciders cool. and you can really taste the yeast characteristics on that i like was that gonna say it's about. got a little funk to it yeah. too it's cool and that's the, the whole thing with yeast when we were deciding how to use yeast by far your most popular thing for cider is going to be cider and champagne yeast, probably champagne yeast. You know, we did tons of experimentation in the backyard. Hey, here's 30 different yeasts that we're going to try in small micro batches. <laughs> figure out what do we like, what do we not like, what's terrible, what's good. It, we had some interesting stuff. I bet. <laughs> and some of it not good interesting. <laughs> yeah. Is we there, know what not to do. Is there another yeast you'll bring out sometimes for a special? We will. So the Dubliner that comes out around St. Patrick's Day, we actually use an Irish ale yeast on that. The cider jam cider that's on, there may still have been some of that. We did that in March. We just used actually a champagne yeast on that. We did a Quebec, I think we did as well. I've asked that. Yeah. <laughs> We've learned about Quebec pretty recently. And we're yeah. Like, yeah. No, which is pretty interesting because like I said, you get so much flavor profile from your yeast. If we gave the same yeast, but blended a bunch of different apples, by and large, going to come up with a very similar product, but we can take the same apples and change six different yeasts and you're going to have six different products. It really does have that much kind of impact on flavor. So I think sometimes people don't pay enough attention to that yeah. on the production side, but I mean, it, yeah, it's it just like, difference. like it's a cider. As far as the community, like we were talking about how we could just kind of fell into the direction of what this podcast is all yeah. about. Another really big thing that we fell into was just seeing the effect that the community has on your business. Sure. Because like you become a local hangout, you become a partner for events. What has your relationship with the community been like? Yeah, and I think for all of our locations, it's always been important to be involved in the community and not just wait for it to show up, but also actively get involved. So here, particularly in Lexington, where we are, have been very active in the United Way and a ton of different supported organizations that they help in the community, countywide, not just in the city, and a ton of other nonprofits that aren't even supported by the United Way that are just independent doing their own thing. So we've done a, a ton of stuff with whether it's food security, animals or animal shelters and adoptions, you name it, we've probably partnered with somebody. It's been a very important part of our business because I think you kind of owe it to the community, right? I mean, we're trying to create these places and establishments where people can come hang out, feel comfortable, discuss ideas, feel part 
of their community. Yeah. Then if you're going to do that, you need to be visible in the community. So we've always made it a point to be very involved in the communities. That's a sentiment we've heard from pretty much everyone. If we're here, we need to be a part of it. Why do you think that brewers and breweries, why are they so interested Given, in community? It's interesting. I mean, I, we also live and work in these communities too. Yeah. So it's not as if these are mega corporations that are managed in a different state or different country. The guys who started these breweries, by and large, they're bootstrapped up and yeah. founded by their, their own families or their own family and friends or whatever it might be. And, and we were no different than that. So I think it it just does tie in a lot more to the community aspect of it when you know there there is local pride in what you do and the fact that you partner with other vendors and relationships and suppliers who are also local. So I think because of that, as small businesses and in that small business community, we understand the importance and how we fit into a bigger picture. Yeah. Um, so I think that's probably why. You just Other than don't that, see we're also that. kind of chill yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I always thought it was like, we're making alcohol, which makes people do bad things. So yeah. we better offset it <laughs> with enough good things. We should, we should go out and do all the community service up front. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that nobody points the finger at us. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, there could be some of that, but, <laughs> but by and large, I think it's because the really do live and work here and all yeah. our employees do, and it's like, we get it. Yeah. You know? Well, and it's a passion. Everybody we talk to, they're passionate about what they're doing. Yeah. It's a creative art. Sure. It's like brewing is creative, just like music. Like, we go out yeah. and we try to just put on a show, but like every time you brew something, it's a show. Yeah, know? it is. And you just have to wait a little time. Just gotta wait a little time. <laughs> and you gotta make sure the show doesn't go off the rails. You gotta watch it a little bit, but I think it, it really is that, that community aspect of these are homegrown businesses. They're yeah. not supported by Anheuser-Busch or InBev or anything like Brought that. I mean, these are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these are the people that you know. I mean, the guys that you're talking about that have been on the podcast, we know all these guys were in the Brewers Alliance with them. It's, you know, we all started these businesses ourselves and we buy things in these communities and we live in these communities. So, you know, it is important to, to be part of them and be visible. And it helps your business too. Yeah. Right. It's like, inherently you should be doing good things in the place you live because if you're not willing to do it, then who is, right? So I, I think that's always one approach of doing good things for a community or being involved. But by the same token, when you do that, you do get a return on it as well. Mm -hmm. And it may not be that day, but you do stick in people's mind and or you are part of an event. There is something that's hosted at your venue. And then you do get a financial reward when that happens. But I think it's just, you gotta be a visible business and, and tied in with the community. Speaking of being tied into the community, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you ran for mayor. Yeah. Tell us about that. Man. Yeah. It is the best thing ever that I did not win. Yeah. <laughs> I remember election night and somebody asked me, uh, my girlfriend asked me, she was like, how do you feel? I was like, relieved. I was like, I don't know how I was going to get any more time out of a day. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I think that was, again, just being visible in the community where a lot of people were like, hey, you've done so much investing in the depot district of being here, being visible in the community and wanting to see this area progress and move forward. We don't really have a, a great roster of individuals running or anybody that you know is kind of following the guy who had been the mayor for about 10 years um, and had done a great job and had been part of moving Lexington forward and getting it involved and engaged and bringing in new businesses. So they kind of wanted to see, okay, we need somebody that's pro-development that really wants to go in and see Lexington revitalized and things happening. So yeah, we ran about a 55-day campaign, lost to the mayor, the current Mayor Hayes, who had been running a campaign for about 
a year and a half, two years. Narrowly losing on a 55-day campaign wasn't a bad showing. Yeah. And like I said, for me, and where we are, as busy as we were, you got to imagine this campaign was running and taking place, literally campaigning right around the time we opened up our fourth location, and we're in process of constructing the fifth location. And it's just like, man, if I would have won, it would have been like, holy geez, I got to figure out where do I get the time split. If things work out the way they're supposed to work out, it doesn't mean that I wouldn't have something in the future in some sort of public office or public service, but right now we are beyond busy. As you saw out in the actual site reproduction warehouse, we're in the confines of where I live with a bunch of papers, but out there, there's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Um, we've added four salespeople over the last probably month and a half throughout the state of North Carolina. We're about to sign a full state distribution contract in South Carolina. We're looking at another relationship to potentially go into four or five more states beyond that. There's just so much stuff moving quickly with what we're doing as a company that it's better for my time to be spent in this room. Yeah. As opposed to <laughs> yeah. out on the streets talking about sidewalks and hand. exactly <laughs> potholes hey. and sidewalks. But yeah. I'm still engaged as much as I need to be with any of the city stuff. I think it worked out well for yeah. me. <laughs> and now you could be the mayor of the cider world. I know, right? <laughs> like, mayor of the cider world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's like with the, the Cider Association uh, for North Carolina is like, I was finishing, I was still in process of chairman of the board of directors for the United Way, literally ending that, going into this other mayoral campaign, and then the stuff that we had going on with um, Cider Association. I was like, guys, I will absolutely be on the executive board, but I cannot hold like, I need to be like the treasurer or the secretary. So I'm the secretary. I was like, I can handle this job. It's like, I do not need to be the, the sole person in charge of leading the organization. It's like, we've got so much stuff going on, but it's good. It's all yeah. growth. That's so. awesome. What is your elevator pitch for people who aren't familiar with cider, who maybe have the super yeah. sweet and are like, eh, it's not for me. When I think about craft beverages generally, it's just like beer. I think you have some people before when you're younger, haven't really had beer and like, oh man, I don't like beer. I think there's a beer for everybody. I think there's probably a cider for everybody too, because there's such a range of products. It's such a range of flavor profiles, mm -hmm. things that we're not even making that anybody tried here. There's pomos that are fortified, almost more like ports, things that taste more like brandy. So there's so much range to it. The thing is the elevator pitch is try it. Yeah. Just don't dismiss the category as the elevator pitch. If you try it, there's a chance you're gonna find something that you like and be surprised by what you tried. And that's what we run into a lot. I think even the Bluticris that you're having, Yeah. I, I was here one Saturday, it's like totally slammed behind the bar. I have to hop in and help the guys, the team that's working there. A couple comes in, like, hey, we don't do cider. We just wanna try beer. But they're trying like, hey, let me try this sour and that sour. They're not really crazy about the sours. They're like, look, let me, why don't you try this? Try this, oh man, that's great. Got two Bluticris. It's like, well, that's cider. So. It is surprising to people, and I'm not saying that anybody is going to convert and be like, oh, they're a beer drinker and they love <laughs> IPAs and no stouts and whatever it is, and be like, get rid of that category. I'm only a cider man now. I, that, that's not realistic. But I think the pitch is try it and explore it and see what you actually like, because it's probably something that you add to your portfolio of craft beverages that you consume. Yeah. It's not going to replace it, and it's not trying to replace it. Now, if you're celiac, maybe it does, and it's like, hey, this is something I enjoy drinking. It has a little flavor to it. It's not super sweet. Then we have plenty of people that it fits into that category for them. But I think the, the real pitch is try it, right? Don't write off the category, which is where, because of the limited experiences and probably 
as a percentage, very negative experiences by mm -hmm. the population. They're like, oh man, I hate psych. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that's what everybody says. I feel you. Just try it. You got to try it out and explore it a little bit. And I think probably when you first tasted beer, maybe you had Bud Light or Keystone or Bush or something. You're like, yeah. man, this stuff isn't great. Yeah. And you're like, oh man, there's other beer that tastes really good. And it's yeah. like, the same way you wouldn't write off the entire category of beer based on having a bush light or something <laughs> yeah. equivalent to it. Milwaukee's best. Don't write off the whole category of cider because the only experience you had was with the cider equivalent of one of those beers. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I mean, that's a way to think about it. And so reality is, I mean, it just takes a lot more time and takes more consumer education because it hasn't been there. And even when you look on the Cider Association side, where we're trying to do kind of industry-wide marketing and things like that, well, we don't have a budget because again, where <laughs> Cider doesn't have a carved out area, all of the sales tax revenue that goes into wine is specifically going to wine and we're not getting any allocation of it, despite yeah. the fact that we fit in the wine category and are probably by volume and sales, a very significant portion of that tax revenue base because we are bigger than most of the wineries. We are bigger than a lot of the breweries. Bull Rock was the largest independent cidery in the entire country before they sold to the private equity firm. So there is a significant amount of revenue coming from cider, but none of it's actually making it back to the cider association to mm. tell people like, hey, try cider. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got, as an industry, uphill battles to fight for sure, because when you look at, if you rewind and craft beer, you know, we're probably where craft beer was 25 years ago mm -hmm. with a product category that has been experienced only like a Bud Light type of, or Bud Light or Bush Light or whatever type of example with Angry Orchard being the representative of our category. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of work. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's uh, the beverage market's a, a very dynamic and interesting world. I'd say one of the cool things that, that we've done in our tap rooms, and it's not here yet in Lexington, but at all other four locations, we've kind of pioneered cider cocktails. So for example, the Bluticris, they make a margarita out of it, the Blutarita. And so it's really showing people that, unlike beer, where you're never gonna go in and be like, hey, can you change up my beer? And <laughs> can you put some of the Pilsner in my IPA and then a dash of wheat beer or something in it? It's like, no, Don't knock really it until you try it, man. Yeah, it's, <laughs> <laughs> but here, um, you know, with cider, it's sure, people are like, hey, I'll take Bluticris with a little pineapple in it or pineapple with a little cherry in it or whatever yeah. it is. And then the craft cocktails were truly adding distilled spirits, typically craft spirits, and making true cocktails out of them too. That's why. It's a lot of flexibility to it. Cooking, there's a lot of flexibility to cooking with cider too. So there is a lot of uses for it. It's again, just goes back to consumer education, branding, awareness. If we can get some more of that moving, then I think there'll be big dividends for the cider industry. Do y'all do snake bites? Absolutely. In fact, we, the original manager at that location, she's still with us. She's our salesperson in Wilmington and Outer Banks now. She wanted to move into sales, but that was like one of her primary things. She wanted to have on the menu. So we actually get fill and fish lager and send it down there and they make them with the fiddle and fish. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that was one thing I was like, I bet like you gotta have a snake bite <laughs> yeah. like collaboration. <laughs> I want a snake snack. bite with fat beer. Yeah. That'd be interesting. What's the shoe story? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The shoe yes. story is a very Lexington-specific bet that still exists between the Lexington and the Durham location. <laughs> that if there is a month of revenue, that Lexington beats the Durham location. Now, you got to imagine Lexington's 20,000 people, and Durham's probably 300,000 people. Yeah. Beside Raleigh. Beside, beside Raleigh. Beside, beside Chapel Hill. Like people in this little territory, and we're like, 
Sure. Charlotte has 3 million people. That's still 45 minutes south of here. So Lexington's like 20,000 people, 90,000 people in the county. Just like Durham is in the heart of the watermelon of the triangle, right? In terms of population and whatnot. Raleigh's bigger, but it's like, it's all there. So yeah, there, there's a standing bet with the former director of retail operations who now owns Honey Girl Meadery. Um, it, it's still on the table that if we beat out of Lexington team, the Durham team in a month, he's going to eat a shoe. I was like, well, look, you know, we'll get you like a Tom's or something like that that doesn't have too much synthetic. <laughs> I was going to say, it. what kind of shoe? I'll put it on a smoker so we get a nice and tender for you, put some barbecue sauce, and you can take a couple bites. So, what I'm hearing is we got to get everybody that's listening to come to Lexington. Yeah. Come to Lexington. Come to Lexington. Yeah. Lexington. A huge month in Lexington. They've got to be at the Durham location at some point. And then, yeah. We'll bring, bring your own shoes. If you're all in Durham, all the new sources back. And it's and only like, taproom, right? Only you don't tap count. Room. Okay. That's, it's only taproom. Yeah, that's <laughs> all, right. all you have to do. We'll make um, it happen. Yeah, we have to make I it happen. See we'll shoe. bring Robbie back. He'll eat the shoe. We'll have a big event for it. I'm shoe fest. <laughs> shoe fest. We'll play it. Yeah, we'll play the Absolutely. shoe fest. Sure. That's the kind of stuff that's going to get us some viral looks on social media if there's a man eating a shoe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They best to facilitate. Like, well, I guess we got to try that cider. <laughs> exactly right. Perfectly. The only thing to wash it a down shoe. with. So we always end every episode with trying to give people who are either getting into the brewing world, they want to open up a brewery. What advice would you give them? I'm always open anytime somebody's trying to start up and I always give them the same, we'll call it wisdom. It's like, look, I do not know all the right answers, but I can tell you a lot of wrong answers that we've (laughs) made bad decisions and had to survive through them. Entrepreneurs are obviously, they want to do their own thing. We're creative people that want to have ideas. They're dreamers. They want to go do stuff. But anybody starting up, I'm always open book. I give them as much help, as much resource in terms of contacts, of suppliers, of vendors that anybody would want. We are very much not a company that is like, oh, we're not going to tell you something. It's like, yeah. you know, try to help anybody. I mean, it's look, if, if we're running our business properly, then it shouldn't matter if I tell you who a good supplier is and help you out and help your business. Yeah. There's a guy who's a cider training course up at Cornell toward the end of last year. He's in South Dakota and had some questions with a bunch of different transportation stuff. I was like, dude, I'll just hook you up with these guys. I was like, they'll take care of you. He's like, hey, thanks so much. That helped out so much for what we were doing in our business. Like, happy to help, man. So I think from that perspective, always open to help people and give them wisdom from our own experience since we've been doing this for about a decade. And then in terms of like how you would craft it starting up, I think that it is a very difficult in a distribution market. Like I said, we've just added salespeople to help combat some of that difficulty. Um, particularly with our product class as well, when you look at chain accounts, grocery stores, total wines, places like that. Cider, like I said, did have this run with Angry Orchard and then like Smith and Ford and Johnny Appleseed, all the other beer company made ciders came out and they were taking shelf space and then they weren't making good product though. So there were very short lived product lines for ABM Bev and Molson Cores and whoever else. So it was like, that did not do any favors to the cider market. And then seltzers obviously went on a tear and more shelf space has been taken from cider with the rise of seltzer mm-hmm. than has been taken from craft beer during that transition. Um, but now seltzer is kind of having its moment of decline as well. Not that it's going to go away. I don't think it'll go away at all. It's just because it's like, hey, it's low calorie and tastes like flavors. Yeah. <laughs> so it's going to have shelf space and it's cheap. It's low in calories, you can buy it relatively inexpensive. So I think it'll still be there, but I think if this is the 1970s and you're starting craft beer, you have a different set of challenges because you're like, man, 
nobody even knows what this is or what beer is supposed to taste like and you're fighting one kind of battle. I think those battles have been won. I think the battle is very different now for a small brewery or a small cidery starting out. It is very difficult for you to start without having a massive pile of money to go in and really make a regional play because every bit of that regional is already being scooped up by either bigger regionals that are already owned by big companies through some sort of alliance, right? Or you're competing against all the local stuff as well. So it's like the idea of, oh man, we're gonna start a brewery in Lexington or Winston or wherever in North Carolina, and we're gonna distribute everywhere. and We're gonna control 10% of the market from Philly to Florida. It's probably not realistic. Yeah. So I would indicate for people, a couple different things. I also think 10 years ago, there was a lot of recommendation 10 to 15 years ago of telling startups where it was like, yeah, you gotta build more capacity, build more capacity because you're gonna be out of capacity. So don't, if you're not doing 15 barrels, you shouldn't even do it. And I don't think that was necessarily great advice because you've gotta be able to get rid of all the beer too. Yeah. yeah. And if you have increasing competition and you've oversized your production, then you're carrying some sort of debt service or equity return or whatever it is to pay back somebody, unless this is totally your self-funded hobby for capacity that you're not using. And so I think there was some level of consulting that happened industry-wide that pushed people in bigger sizes and directions than they probably needed. If I was starting a brewery or something right now, I would highly encourage people to size it for everything they can sell in their tap room. Don't even worry about distribution. Yeah, we've heard that, that before. If you guys yeah. were going to start a brewery, the three of you right now, I would tell you, go get enough money and go get a five barrel, three barrel, whatever system that you can sell 100% of your liquid yeah. in the doors that you open up to the public. And if you don't sell any to go, if you never can anything mobily or in-house, it does not matter. Yeah, and you we haven't seen a lot of, we've seen a lot of one barrel systems, one, and yeah. one, to, one to three barrel systems that are doing really great for their community. And Because they do great for the community, you can come in and if you need a supplement beer, I don't know if you guys have done anything with Jeff at Goofy Foot, Goofy Foot down in High Point. He has a one barrel system there and they make some of their own stuff and then they also just highlight all North Carolina beers and ciders and stuff. So it's like, yeah. that's a great little business model where it's like, hey, I'm using a small system. He's not concerned about the capital intensity or having 15 people to produce yeah. and ship and talk about it on social media, everything they need to do, they do in their building and he supplements everything else with, hey, let me get some other local guys that I know and I like and put their beer on too. Yeah. So yeah, or if you don't even have guest beers, just get an extra fermenters and max out your one barrel or three barrel system is probably the best way. If somebody's just looking to get in the industry and without a lot of other capital intensive equipment and things like that, really make money and make a living as something they want to do as a full-time job or part-time hobby or whatever, that would be the best way to go. Because from the stuff we walk around out there, there's a fortune worth of equipment in that building. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I think we we're going to go try some yeah, no. now. Yeah. We're definitely going to go try <laughs> Absolutely. some. Absolutely. They'll hook you up and some flights and hang out and see what's going down. We appreciate you sitting down and chatting this. No, yeah. I appreciate you guys Super coming cool. out. Excited for what you're doing, and um, as you need contacts and other areas, going to other parts of the state, anything you need, let me know. Yeah. Happy to help out. Thank you so yeah, much. Definitely. Thanks again to John for having us. What a great conversation, and we're going to try our hardest to get that shoe on the grill for you. It's hard not to bond with someone when you're in a bonded facility for making wine. It was truly inspiring to hear about his passion for the growth of Lexington and how helping others is always the right answer. 
We loved all the ciders we got to try, especially my favorite, the Bluticris. It was truly delicious. And just like John said, if you don't think you like ciders, give them another try. We sure did, and now we're converts. And Bull City has five locations across the state. That's one, two, three, four, five. So why don't you get out there and decide her for yourself? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Bruise Rock. Until next time, cheers, y'all. <laughs> cheers, y'all. Cheers, y'all. Cheers, y'all. Do you want me to do cheers, y'all? Yeah. Till next time, cheers, y'all. <laughs>